When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Robin Pecknold from Fleet Foxes, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Robin Pecknold, hi! Welcome to the LSQ podcast. It's good to it's good to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. Thank you so much for for talking to me. I uh, didn't think that I would be able to adjust to doing interviews this way on Zoom. I truly had never interviewed anyone on uh, you know on Zoom or similar before a few months ago. Um, and initially, I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. That's not what the show is. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to just wait until it's safe to have people to my apartment again for interviews or to meet up with them. And it's been interesting to kind of explore how an interview works differently in this situation, but also the way it's still the same. And, and yeah, I'm here in my closet and you're there where you are and, and we're still able to do this. So thank you so much for, you know, going through the uh, the, the steps it takes to do things this way nowadays. Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean... I'm sure I've experienced a little bit of this just feeling like it's great to be able to connect with people um, even though it has to be over Zoom, you know. Well, yeah, and then we can be wherever in the world we are and still and still do these conversations. We don't have to wait to necessarily be in the same city. But, you know, part of the reason I'm saying that is that I know, you know, I've read, you know, your statement about the new album, Sure, and I, I know from other things I've seen articles about it that, you know, the similar thing for you in these past several months was kind of wrapping your head around, do I just put aside the thing I was working on before this, or do I adapt to this situation? So tell me a little bit about that moment in this, in this album, when, when you had to figure out what to do with what you'd made last year. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a huge, it took a couple months to make sense of how to finish it. And that decision, like you're saying, to adapt or just abandon it, or but we all are going to have to adapt. You know, I feel like this isn't, you know, things aren't going to change for a little while, and um, better to adapt than to kind of wait for things to get back to normal. You know, and um, I think you know most of the music was pretty developed back in February, back in March. It was just a kind of matter of executing it. There was still left to do, but I didn't have any of the lyrics written. Um, for whatever reason, I had just really not prioritized writing lyrics. I guess I was just so focused on musical elements and musical ideas that I wasn't, you know, really thinking about words. And I wasn't really um, in that mindset for some reason. I was just kind of working on music, go, go, go. And then for me, yeah, this three-month 
forced isolation of that early period of quarantine was just kind of became this um, opportunity to reflect and and kind of plan for how the album would get finished, but then kind of actually get some work done on the lyrics for the first time. Do you think that it would have been a totally different album if it just in a parallel universe where the pandemic didn't happen, where 2020 didn't happen the way it did? You know, would the words have been different? Would the, you know, the final execution of it have felt different to you, do you think? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, I think there was, you know, there was a string session that got canceled for logistical reasons. We had string arrangements all done. And and then and then at first for logistical reasons, then later for kind of budget reasons where I just felt like, I, let me, I, I can just get this done easier if we just power through in the studio, just me and Beatrice recording. Um and it'll be cheaper. And then uh, lyrically, I don't know what it would have been about had a pandemic not totally changed things. I guess I mean even in the more meta sense, because I, I because you know because of the way that we've all had to let go some of our ego attachment to whatever we're doing, and be and be a little bit more instinct. I guess maybe instinct. You know, simultaneously like reflecting on our the things that we're saying and putting out into the world the the things we really can stand by in this time but also trusting yourself you know and and uh i i was intrigued by some of the stuff that that you've said about this about kind of this album being a moment to be less critical of yourself yeah for sure i mean i think you know it was interesting you, you know you start out making music you love albums you want to make albums and, you know, that's what you want to do. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get good at that. And I wanted to kind of, that's what I wanted to devote my life to. And, you know, before the pandemic, the album, in addition to being like this artistic statement, was kind of a, a vessel for a two-year tour or a big press campaign or a, you know, it facilitated all of this kind of commercial activity as well, you know. And so when all that seemed to kind of fade away or... Um, be deprioritized or just no longer an option as devastating as that is in so many ways it also just let the album be an album by itself to me finishing it um, and it didn't it, it meant the music it was the only thing it was the only aspect of the quote-unquote campaign was the, the album basically so it just kind of um, I don't know it made it feel a little more pure in that way and and so and a little less yeah there's less I think every musician, you know, if you were expecting to play the Hollywood Bowl and now you're sitting at home, that's definitely like an ego, a, a very good and welcome ego um, diffuse, diffusion, you know. And also, yeah, it's a, I would imagine for you, I've always sort of perceived that some of uh, that, that the commerce of music was an aspect of doing what you do that's not like your favorite part or something. And, I, you know, for a lot of artists, I think like having to figure out the ways to commercialize, you know, what you're making and, and look for the different commercial outlets for it is just such a kind of a punishment in a way, even though it's the thing that allows you to keep doing it. And so having fewer commercial outlets to even worry about and not having to worry about touring because touring's exhausting, right? So it it must be a relief in a way to know that it's possible to adapt to putting out albums without touring and it's not the end of the world. 2020 may feel like the end of the world, but in our micro sense, like the things that we do, if we have to adapt, it's not, that's not what's going to kill us. I, 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 I appreciated 
I appreciated something you wrote in your statement about music being essential, you know, and how we don't need it to live, but but what is, you know, it is still an essential thing. And I wonder when you first in your life had that feeling of connection to music, that it was an, like an essential thing to you. Uh, man, first moment it was essential. I mean, my dad would play, he, he was a luthier and a bass guitarist and he played guitar and, you know, he was playing music all the time when we were growing up. And so I think that definitely imprinted on me subconsciously. And it was, you know, after dinner every night, he would sit down and, and put like a Steely Dan album on or like a Tower of Power album or something that I thought was corny at the time. And he would play bass along with it, you know. And so it was just a kind of an everyday thing for us. And, and that, you know, I'm definitely my father's son in that sense that I kind of, um, that that remains like the thing I feel compelled to do. And, and the thing that when I get to do it, I feel really like healed and kind of my, really feel like myself, you know. But what, who were the first artists where you thought, okay, that dad has dad's music and this is my music? Uh, first one was probably Cat Stevens, if I want to say, that when I was like six. But then it was like Nirvana and Pearl Jam when I was eight. I guess, 94, I was eight. And being grown up in Seattle and having that stuff be so... Um, you know, just to be from this town that, you, you know, it wasn't New York, it wasn't L.A., but the best most popular music in the world was was coming from Seattle that also had a huge impact on me. Damn, yeah, did you know, I mean, did you know when you first saw Nirvana on MTV or something like that, oh, they're from, I mean, did you have an awareness of them as a local band before they were massive? I think I did a tiny bit, but not, I mean, I was pretty young, but I had older siblings, and it was, so it wasn't really until they were on MTV, et cetera, that, that it was, um, you know, super significant to me, but, um, you know, it immediately made Seattle, put Seattle on the map for even people in Seattle, you know, and, and, and kids in Seattle. And, and, um, so definitely Nirvana was the first band. But also, I mean, you were a fan, so you were a fan already as a little kid of Nirvana and then the singer kills himself. Right. Yeah, that was that was crazy because I remember listening to the, the news report about that driving um, home from school that there was they were, you know, and then getting back, getting back home and turning the TV on. And it was like breaking news live, you know, helicopters at, at the house in Magnolia that they lived at. Um, yeah, that was the day he he committed suicide was, was very intense. Yeah, was that, I mean, uh, was that the first, that must, I'm guessing that was how you found out what suicide was, possibly. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, totally. Part of the reason that I'm, that I'm asking about that is because there's a song on, on Shore about artist heroes of yours who we've lost to suicide, and, um, I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, did you, were you freaked out that Kurt Cobain died? Were you, were you sad at eight years old that, that Kurt Cobain died? So sad. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were we were so sad, and then again, you know, I know getting getting it hit even harder when Elliot Smith obviously committed suicide, or you know the circumstances of that are in question. But um, when Elliot Smith passed away, he, he, you know, then he was my guy when I was like sixteen, seventeen. You know, Elliot was was the king, and he was down in Portland, and it was yeah, it was weird. To, I guess it was strange to grow up and have kind of local heroes at different ages kind of get get taken from me. Um, in that way. Do you think you were, I mean, do you think you attached to something in 
the music that was coming from that place of like melancholy and that's why you were a fan um already yeah i think i've 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 gravitated towards you know more melancholy music at certain times elliot smith is a perfect soundtrack to like teenage angst for sure and i think nirvana i just liked when i was eight i just liked because it was like loud and uh really had amazing melodies you know he doesn't get enough credit for for the quality of those melodies so did music soothe you i mean were you the artists that you were listening to would it make you feel better when you listened to their songs for sure yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it's such a it's such a um i still listen to music for that reason you know that's like the main especially now listening to the radio a lot more than I used to, just letting someone else pick the music for me, you know, in these, in 2020. And then just listening to really like, yeah, soothing, healing music. Like it's, nothing else works like that. You know, it's, it just, we need music more than ever now, I think. Um, and it's always been, been a source of comfort and, 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 and uh, joy for me, for sure. Does writing songs and, and, and making your own music like evoke that same kind of feeling? Is that the feeling you're going for when you're creating? Um, I feel like after if I spend like an hour trying to write a song, I do feel pretty good afterwards, almost like I'd just done like a, I don't know, I don't really do yoga, but like if I'd done like a yoga class or something where it's like, ah, I... I <laughs> So in that way, and I, and I get a little bit agitated if I spend too much time without working on something. Um, and I think that's kind of, as I'm realizing that more and more as I get older, that's like kind of what keeps me doing it every day is it's kind of just this, like more of a quote unquote practice. Um, do you write every, do you write every day? I, well, I, when I have the space for it, I like to at least try something every day in a kind of non-judgmental way, but just in that way where you sit down you like commune with something and see what happens and just be curious and not like, okay, I need to sit down and write like a hit song right now. You know? And do you, is that with it? Would that usually be with a guitar or? Yeah. Guitar. And so you just sit there and hold it and wait for the feeling to, to come. Yeah. (laughs) Do you find that in all of the, I know you've been traveling a lot, you know, over the course of, well, making sure and, and since, do, do you find that the environment affects how how much comes to you or how creative you feel or how productive you are? What Which envi- which sorts of environments bring out the most in you? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I've always loved working in different environments just because something about being in, in an unfamiliar place obviously um, puts you in that mindset. You know, like if you go on a hike, it always feels twice as long on the way to the destination than it feels on the way back, you know, because you're you're just attuned to your surroundings in a kind of like, you know, an almost like evolutionary, like, am I safe kind of sense, you know, and and that's such a great mindset to be in, I think, for, for being creative, because you're, uh, it just new, new things feel possible, you know, certain space, like, if you're just in your apartment day after day, like, you've exhausted those possibilities, maybe, um, whatever had come of that, that, that space. So I do like changing location a lot when working on something. Um, just as a way of, you know, accessing that. And um, I don't think it needs to be any, like, particularly beautiful location or anything. I think it just needs to be new, you know, needs to be fresh. And I think that that can help, you know, if you have, you know, you you compile 50 minutes of music into an album, if, if, ten, if, if that's 10 minutes of music each from five different places, you know, there, there'll be a little more variety to that um, than if it was all just made in one spot, you know, I think. 
And when did you start writing songs? I started writing songs when I was 14. Um, my art, I have two older siblings and our dad got us all the same, three, three models of all the same Martin guitar for Christmas one year. And because uh, he got a discount at the store on buying three of the same guitar. I guess I had too many. And, uh, <laughs> and I was the first one to kind of pick it up and, and learn it. And I, I learned um, Times Are Changing. That was the first song I learned and it was really hard. And then I gave up for a few months, but then I got because uh, it really hurt my hands and then I, but then I got back into it and I started writing songs almost immediately and then got really into Elliot and you know there was like a great internet kind of fan community around like Elliot Smith and and uh in terms of people like starting websites and, and transcribing his songs because they're so complicated in certain ways but so like um you know, it, once you figure it out as a kid learning guitar, it's so satisfying to be, you know, redoing, recreating the thing that you love on the album so much, you know, with your own two hands. And so I got really into Elliot and then really into Joni Mitchell websites because her tunings are crazy too. And then that same kind of like, you know, the ability to make this, you know, recreate this really unique sound. I got super into that as a teenager and that was what kept me going. And, and then, you know, I, I, being one tuning of a Joni song or something, and then I'd I'd make up my own chord in that tuning, and then I started writing songs like that, and um, and I was just really, you know, uh, I don't know. I would write write songs, terrible songs, constantly, and I just I just totally loved it. I loved it so much. When did it start to feel like something that you might do as like the thing that you do? Um. I don't. I felt so passionate about it as a teenager that I think every other possibility started to um, seem uh, unlikely, or I just needed. I just felt like that was what I was going to do, and that was what I felt passionate towards. And then I was also kind of absorbing the weird mythologies around, like the Beatles were twenty years old when they came to America, and. You know, Brian Wilson was 22 when he made blah, blah, blah. So you, if you if you take that nonsense kind of too seriously, then you're like, okay, I only have a few years to get, you know, to make a masterpiece or, you know. And, and that was a much, you know, that's that just seemed like such a harder thing to do and such a kind of, um, I don't know, I, I got so much energy from wanting to do that rather than like okay I'm gonna go to college when I'm 18 and maybe I'll get a degree degree in something and figure it out and but I that that seemed less exciting to me at, at the that age than um just going fully on music and I was in the perfect city for it because you know Seattle was still a huge music town it was very affordable to live there at the time and um it just felt possible you know it's the right size city um and it, so many great clubs and so many great people making music there that it was just like, this is what I'm going to do. This is, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the right place I, and this is in my family's history and this is what I want. And so how, what did you do from there? I mean, how quickly did that evolve? Or did you have bands before you started Fleet Foxes? Uh, I played in one band when I was 19 on a tour uh, called Delore. It was kind of a like Beach Boys influenced pop band. And then I was already kind of doing Fleet Foxes. We were doing, I don't know if we'd done like a full band show yet, but uh, I just did that one, that one tour. I'd, but I played a lot of open mics and a lot of uh, solo before that. And I'd been making solo EPs and going to coffee houses and, and, and playing, playing that way. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I mean, how would you say your your approach to songwriting has changed most significantly since then? Well, I think back then it was, you know, just trying to zero in on how to how to I mean, there's just so many facets to it. I could I feel like I could just answer that question for the next hour. (laughs) Give it to give it to me. (laughs) Well, because, you know, there's the kind of mechanical process of like sitting down and finding good melodies and melodies aren't very interesting to talk about because it's just a good one or it's not. I guess you can just, you know, you can try and divine why one melody is good and one is one isn't. There are certain properties of good melodies that I guess you could analyze but it's not that interesting to talk about but then there are all these other elements that do that are like interesting to talk about like stylistic choices genre choices you know extra narrative choices about decisions the band made or you know where something was was recorded or you know the the when I was first starting out it was just how do you construct a song and how do you get from point a to point b you know just trying to figure that out was was enough you know and i wasn't even really thinking about it as a personal thing it was just like how do you make a good song not even like how do i express myself you know it was more like um i wasn't thinking about expressing myself or like trying to find the thing that felt like the thing only i could do or something like that it was really just like what are the mechanics of songwriting and how do i um make something compelling you know because the difference between you know it's one of those things where the difference between a great song and a and a bad song can be pretty hard to discern and and the difference between an an, ama- an incredible song and a great song could are you can be even harder you know there are these just ineffable things that you can't put your finger on and so I think the mystery of that was compelling to me I guess as I've gotten older I still want I, I hope that I still have that knowledge about how to construct a song and what a song is you know I think at certain times I've thought more about you know, pushing against that and making longer songs, but that's not like, uh, you know, that's not an innovation of the 21st century. There have been long songs for hundreds of years. It's not like, it's just, you know, exercising a different muscle or trying to find a different way of, you know, making songs long, but coherent, you know? And then I think like more and more, it's just kind of like wanting to express, I guess, um, it sounds dumb, but like wanting to express myself or feel like the thing that I'm saying really means something to me and that it's interacting with the music in a way that makes it worth being in song form and then um, still kind of remaining, you know, amazed and, and intrigued by the ways albums kind of control people's perceptions of time the ways a song, you know, a, a song can be incredible, but built out of very simple components. Um, the ways songs playing with someone's expectations or subverting them or, or reinforcing them, how that, you know, playing with the kind of back and forth of that and how someone's experiencing the music, you know, those things remain really interesting to me, but I guess I think about them more, um, more than I would when I was first starting out. Do you think there are rules about those things, though? I don't know. My tendency hearing you say that is like I can imagine how useful it would be as like in the beginning of your kind of creative journey to be studying like the masters, whoever your masters are and 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 trying to learn like truly how did they do that? What how do they do it? What's their technique? Um, But at a certain point, I would imagine, especially after making as much music as you've made at this point, it's just like. 
anything's a song, isn't it? I mean, do you still do you feel still wedded to that idea when you're when you're looking at some you know some new work of of analyzing it according to what you think a song is? Or I agree that anything is a song. I think that uh, it's weird to me that it's interesting to me that you know song form seemed to congeal into something in terms of you know intro verse verse chorus verse bridge chorus or whatever you want to you know segment it out it's interesting that that seemed to develop the the, and that the length of it seemed to settle at around three and a half minutes and that an album length settled somewhere around 40 and you know those kinds of things can you say that those are um yeah, I guess I can't. I'm I, I I get stuck on the aspect of it that is like, that's like the the man. You know, some of it's just the man. Like, why is an album? You know, or it's just like the universe. You know, why is an album a certain length? Because you can only fit so many minutes on a on a vinyl album. When that was the way to make an album, why are there you know why are there a certain number of songs on an album because of the way publishing works? You know. And then the, the question of a song, obviously, that's different. It's like, how much attention span do we have is more, I guess, the question of, like, what is, like, the perfect song length or something. When did you start to feel like just, I have my own, like, how early into making music did you start to feel like, you know, I have my own instincts. I don't need to compare myself to the way Dylan or Elliot or whoever else did it. I, I'm just going to do what I do. I don't know that I was c- conscious of that until relatively recently um i think that until maybe five years ago i was just almost more of a music fan than a musician in terms of my self-assessment um because so much of what i was thinking about so much of the value in music to me was kind of bringing different um older things into conversation and then kind of proving that you could do um that you understood it well enough to kind of re not recreate it, but to kind of synthesize it effectively and mm-hmm. in a way that didn't feel like dilettantish. I think that was, especially because, you know, working in genres that have this kind of question of authenticity, um, you know, like folk music, acoustic music, pop music, pop music, less so, uh, you know, there's a, that can be kind of a motivating factor, like to prove that you know how to do it for real. Uh, and that there is an it that needs to be done for real, and that some people don't do it that way, um, and that they're you know invalid artists for that reason. Um, so, and then I I think that that's less of a thought for me now, um, and maybe in the, it's only in the last five years that I've been like ah, I know, you know I don't need I don't need a necessarily need like you know. A, a pat on the back from the guy at the record store anymore um, to kind of keep me going. Um, but I can kind of explore these these other things or, th- or things that are maybe more interesting to me than kind of I'm proving to you that I can write a folk song as good as a Burt Janch song or, or something, you know. Right, and then having to deal with, and I, I read something you said about this in a recent interview about, you know, what what I guess what's known as like the anxiety of influence, like, you know, learning to deal with the anxiety of being attached to your your audible influences like what you're saying where you're like I know how to do this but also don't confuse me with that I'm not I'm not ripping that off as you know the thing that everyone fears being accused of you know it, it, like it's it's kind of funny because 
this podcast, like in a way, focuses on the question that is the most prosaic question in an in, in a music interview, which is, "What are your influences?" You know, it's like the corniest, most entry level question, and yet, like, there's something to it where it's like, if you can get past feeling harangued by an awareness of your influences and like, no, don't anybody talk about it. If you can get past that, it's like, it is such a key thing. The things that you're, that are your, the foundation for what you're reacting to or comparing yourself to, or trying to reach, like that's meaningful, that's meaningful. Um, and then you just have to trust that because it's you, an individual human who owes only, will only ever exist once in history, Robin Pecknold, like automatically it's different from, your influences like no one else can make what you make yeah what i mean that's what's one weird thing about being t like 10 ish years into doing this is like at this point i feel like a fairly different person from the person making the first fleet foxes album but i'm you know building a discography it's almost like fleet foxes is an influence on fleet foxes you yeah. know <laughs> and you're kind of like well, my primary influence now is this uh, folk pop album from 2008 that I really love. Can't get over it. <laughs> Do you think that you would have called your project Fleet Foxes if you were... I mean, because it, it, it has always... I know that there are, you know, this ongoing band supporting you and that there are contributions from them in the music, but it's been your thing kind of since the beginning, you know, and and certainly I can imagine at this point you must have moments where you think, is this... Am I a solo art? Like, do I? I mean, have you ever thought about what would a what would a Robin Pecknold album be? That how would that be different from a Fleet Foxes album? Um, I think that you know, part of the f fun of doing music to me was the pr project thought um, that you know, I don't know that I would do. Um, a solo album or a solo career i don't you know part of it is to kind of like divert attention onto this name of a thing that isn't you you know and just be like i'm making music for this name and even if you're always written all the songs or recorded most of the stuff it's still kind of for this th other thing i don't know that like you, i don't know i, I sorry i'm at a loss yeah no i no i understand i and i think i understand your your reaction to the question but i can't help but wonder like then don't you is there other music that occurs to you that is not for fleet foxes like are you know is there a sort of a bubble of song ideas somewhere that you're like okay if i were doing something other than fleet foxes it would be, I would make this music. I think that, I think that um, if I think about other projects, I, I think often during the course of making an album, I'll be like, oh, I want to do a, just an album that's just all chill, classical guitar and singing really quiet. And that would be cool to have a whole album like that. I think, oh, it'd be great to do a whole album with like, you know, a brass ensemble playing like, you know, crazy parts through the whole thing. Or, oh, it'd be great, cool to do like a, just a big pop album or whatever. But then what ends up happening is that the best of those impulses kind of just make it onto the the album and 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 give the album the, that variety. So I think whatever other projects would be 
it would really just be teasing out elements that are already in the, the albums already because there are not that many places that I would want to go musically aside from like composing or doing more instrumental stuff. Um, there aren't that many places I would I would feel compelled or, or to go musically that aren't kind of already in this in this discography, you know. Talk to me about lyric writing and sort of how how your approach to that has has evolved um, from from yeah even going back to when you first started writing tunes. Um, how, how do you do it, and where in the process does that happen? I know for this group of songs, you've said it it happened kind of at the end of things, but is that is that how it usually works? Well, yeah, for me, melody is always the the main, you know. Uh, the driving factor. I feel like I'll hold on to things that have really certain strong melodies, and and those really determine how the lyric can develop most of the time. Um, even down to the level of like this high note needs to be this syllable, or otherwise I can't sing it. You know, um, I I kind of know what syllables. When my voice gets into a certain range, I know what syllables those need to be, and so that is you know it's kind of like. I feel like for me, lyric writing is hard to talk about because it's a little bit like doing a Rubik's Cube where you kind of don't know why you're solving it, but you are by just moving all these different parts around and just and just coming to this thing and then you end up finishing the, the puzzle. Um, it's kind of like I've never tried writing lyrics first and I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to, but I'm sure the lyrics would be very different from what I write as in reaction to melodies. And I'm sure that the... Um, the uh the music would have to be different the melodies would have to be a lot different and that would be a fascinating thing to explore for that reason um but you know lyric writing i guess i i've always i wanted to be very clear on this on this album and i want you know i think the last last time around i was a little bit more i wasn't that comfortable with what i was talking about on, on the previous album and so i kind of couched it in some certain allusions and and you know references that um kind of kept kept the kept people at arm's length you know because I wasn't really comfortable because it kind of came out of a dark time you know and this one was not really that way I wanted to be very clear I want to be like you know a lot of proper names right away just like these are humans in the world these are you know this is what I want to talk about and and um I think like being you know I'll I'll have ideas for lyrical problems to solve. Like how do I how can I be clear in a way that's not, you know, to it that doesn't doesn't feel wrong. How can I stick this landing on this like you know, happy musical idea that doesn't feel corny or, you know, that it's always kind of what's the problem that needs solving and how do I how do I get it there in a way that feels comfortable, you know? And and it, lyrics are less of an intuitive thing to me than than music where I can I do love sitting down and just playing guitar for an hour singing gibberish and just opening some door to another world or you know whatever however that ends up feeling who are the lyricists that you've sort of studied the most to uh to kind of divine some some wisdom from oh man well I really like John I got really into John Prine um just that that his humor and his, his his how much personality he has um Joanna Newsom, I think, was like, a, I mean, her whole musical approach is like absolutely incredible to me. I think it's just something no one else could ever do, and it's very brave and very like wonderful. I'm happy to be alive at the same time as that stuff. Um, that's like, but that's like 
you know, nobody can, you can't attempt to kind of recreate that. Nobody can else can do that. The way she makes her lyrics have so much content, yet remain so melodic and uh, be so perfectly matched to what's happening musically is the main inspiration. Uh, less so at maybe at this point than kind of how how perfectly dense and kind of poetic it is, you know. Um, but I don't know. I have a lot of more. I feel like I have a lot more musical influences than I have lyrical influences because, like, because for the for the reasons I was saying of just there's this the lyrics are like this. You know, you're trying to fit as much meaning as you can into it, into this kind of strict crossword puzzle almost, you know. It sounds to me like the, the analogy I've come up with for your creative process in the course of this conversation is that it's like kind of parkour. It's sort of like you know the playground, you know the monkey bars, the layout of them, you know, and and every time it's you're sort of trying to figure out the parkour to do to get across the playground based on the familiar structures that are there. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like I've even noticed kind of like settling into certain album sequencing things in terms of like song two being the single, song four being mellower than song three, song seven being a, you know, moving in a certain way. Just certain things about like structures of an album that I'm kind of like, you know, with with Shore making a 15 song record that kind of had those elements in there, but in kind of got hit those beats in in different ways. You know, there are certain things like that that I'm always trying to kind of like reckon with or kind of how do you, you know, work within these formats, but keep it fresh and, and keep it interesting. And I think like obviously there are there are routes you can take where you just ignore all of that stuff and just make something like unclassifiable but there are certain things about structures and and forms that have developed that i i think are kind of more like naturally occurring than they are kind of man-made you know they just kind of arise out of um you know prep people's preference or, or just how people experience things in time and so i don't you know it's it's uh it's always trying to balance those things so you know experimentation and, and pushing yourself with kind of respecting why certain forms exist in, at all, you know. I don't know. You're probably not capable of analyzing this objectively, but um, but yeah, do you think that that Shore is, is the best work you've done yet? Uh, it was the most fun to do. I felt the most, like, powerful making it, I guess. It was so just, like, aside from, you know, the moments where you're, like, you know, praying for lyrics to come or something or, you know, but there was a lot about it that was very, very directed and very kind of like, this is what's going to happen. This is how, you know, you could ask this person, this person, this person, this studio, this studio, this studio, execute it, work day after day after day after day, just working. And uh, so that was a great, I feel very happy with the process. And I think like the things on the record that I'm most proud of are the things that, that felt the most kind of he heaven sent or something like Sunblind or Featherweight or songs that kind of came out of nowhere and just kind of just started writing themselves. And, and, um, you know, so I think like, as far as like getting to the point where I figured out the balance of kind of really concerted daily work while also, you know, knowing and waiting for those kind of charmed moments to arise out of that work. Um, it's definitely my favorite 
recording experience. Um, I don't know. You know, I was thinking about that. People will talk to me about like the second Fleabox's record, Helplessness Blues, about how much that meant to them when they were at a certain age or, you know, going through similar things is like what that album was expressing. And I'm like, there's no way I can, I, I would never make an album that was going through those same things again, because I was, I won't ever go through those same things again. I won't be 24 years old reckoning with those things again, you know? And so you can make an album that you think is better and it remains true to where you're at. But, but if, you know, there are things like that that will only ever, you can ever only have hope to happen once, you know? Yeah. Although I can imagine some, uh, a few years from now or some years from now when, when people have perspective on shore that people who were in their mid thirties when it came out, will say similar things to you about, about this album. So, you know, and, and, and that's one of the things that's like, so gratifying to me about this career thing is like i'm able to like grow up make music release it every couple of years and if there are people that are receptive to that music we're kind of growing up together and and you know you're getting to engage with people over a lifetime you know and and it's and you i can hear from people that the music was meaningful to them at a certain time or they attached it to a certain memory and and then that's like just such a gratifying thing to hear back from people about what you put into the world, you know. Well, thank you, Robin, so much for connecting to do this. Take care. All right, I'm Jenny Ellisque. That brings us about to the end of episode 56 of LSQ. Thanks again to Robin Pecknold for his time and candor. And thank you, dear listener, for doing just that. Episode 57, out in a few more weeks, features a conversation with one of my favorite people, Vampire Weekend bassist Chris Bayo, whose excellent new album on his own as Bayo, Dead Hand Control, just came out today. And hit me up at Jenny LSQ on Twitter or Instagram if you've got questions or feedback. I'll talk to you next time.